Hello and welcome to the October 2021 edition of the Future Leaders Communique. I am Dr. Brendan Morrissey, one of the consultant editors for the Future Leaders, and I'm joined today by Dr. Emily Lynn. Emily, hello. Oh, hello, thank you for having me. Great to have you. Um, so I might jump in by talking a little bit about the background of your issue. Um, can you tell us a bit about your background and interests? Oh yeah, so my story is fairly boring. I pursued undergrad medicine and took a year to do a Bachelor of Medical Sciences where I found my interest in rheumatology and am now in my second year of basic physician training in Melbourne. Um, although I'm still very early on in my career, I am quite passionate about optimising patient care and sort of the working medical environments, especially in scenarios which are clearly sort of modifiable or avoidable and a big part of this sort of being related to timely and effective communication, which is all I think led me to the communiques in this in this sort of scenario. Well, I can definitely see some of those themes they mentioned coming up in your edition. Uh, we might jump into the start of that, into your guest editorial and the editorial. Guest editorial from Emily Lin. Welcome to the October 2021 edition of the Future Leaders Communique. In this edition, we explore the importance of communication, clinical accountability, and ethical practice at all stages of the health professional slash patient relationship. These aspects of practice are raised in the case of Mr. W, an elderly indigenous man diagnosed with metastatic cancer who died in acute and unexpected circumstances. At multiple stages of Mr. W's admission, his family made concerted efforts to be involved in his care and the healthcare decision-making process, as was appropriate in his circumstance. Unfortunately, Mr. W's family felt that they were intentionally excluded throughout the process and failed to receive any explanation or closure for months following his death. As junior clinicians, we often feel as if there is a race to learn as much as we can and master as many technical clinical skills as possible. However, training in the non-technical skills such as communication, which may make or break a therapeutic relationship, is often only fleetingly addressed. Sometimes, patients and families who may simply want to know why they are being subjected to countless investigations and treatments are labelled as being difficult or refusing care. As a junior doctor, covering inpatient wards after hours, we are often surprised that the patient becomes very obliging when the medical rationale is explained. Discussion about limitations of care prognosis and breaking bad news are frequently referred to and acknowledged as being important during our training as medical students and interns. As we progress through the junior doctor's journey, these skills are often taken for granted and are rarely practiced. In contrast, far more time and energy are spent towards learning and mastering the reading of an ECG or interpreting a blood gas result. Likewise, the ethically and morally complex clinical situations are often covered early in our education, often in the preclinical medical syllabus. These education sessions usually generate interesting theoretical discussions and highlight the emerging challenges in the ever-evolving field of health sciences. Despite this education, once junior doctors enter the clinical workspace, 
we often find ourselves underprepared to address these situations in practice. In this edition, we are joined by two experts who explore the concerns raised in Mr. W's case. Professor Michelle Leach, rheumatologist and deputy dean of medicine at Monash University, discusses the complexity and lifelong need to continue developing communication skills and shares some of her own methods and valuable experience. Professor Justin Oakley, author and deputy director of Monash Bioethics Center, explores the ethical concerns surrounding clinician accountability and importance of maintaining audits and incident records to review and improve ongoing medical practice. I hope this edition of the Future Leaders Communique will serve as a reminder of the importance of good communication and practicing with ethical integrity. Furthermore, I hope that our experts' words will inspire and prompt ongoing learning and development in all aspects of medical practice for our readers. Editorial from Brendan Morrissey. Welcome to the latest edition of the Future Leaders Communique. In this edition, we present a coronial investigation into the death of an elderly Indigenous man in hospital following a surgical procedure. The case raises important issues around communication. It allows us to reflect on how we as clinicians communicate, both with patients and their families. Our guest editor for this edition is Dr Emily Lin, a keen advocate for junior medical staff support and well-being. Emily is a basic physician trainee with a clinical interest in rheumatology and is currently working in Melbourne, Victoria. Emily is passionate about communication and the huge role it plays in the safe practice of clinical medicine. In her own words, I distinctly recall thinking that communication was one of my greatest weaknesses prior to commencing medical school, and although I will not claim to be a great communicator now, I do recognise and respect the importance of timely and appropriate communication and do my best to incorporate it in my daily practice. How we as clinicians communicate with patients is too often framed from our own perspective. We can all too easily reduce these patients' interactions to simple transactions. We receive information, interpret it, and provide recommendations on further care. Shared decision-making subsequently becomes a short list of options we deem appropriate for the patient to consider. This oversimplification of our role and our responsibility to the patient fails to acknowledge and respect the patient's perspective. True shared decision-making comes with the understanding that we can learn from our patients, that acknowledging their experiences and respecting their values will allow us to provide the best quality care to them. Intrinsic to this is providing our patients the opportunity to involve those close to them to be their supports and advocates. In the coronial case discussed in this edition, it is clear that this opportunity was at times lost. Communication with the patient, Mr W and his family, was highlighted as a key theme by the coroner in their findings. In their grief, Mr W's family felt that their voice had not been heard at important junctures in Mr W's care. The coronial investigation provided the family an opportunity to articulate what lessons they believed clinicians could learn from the death of their loved one. 
His family provided a list of their insights on how Mr W's care could have been improved to the coroner, which was duly published along with the findings of the investigation. Clinical communication is a skill that we are all constantly developing and improving. Fundamental to this is how to listen and learn from our patients and their families. We have much to learn from the lessons articulated by the family of Mr W. We are proud of what this edition of the Future Leaders Communique adds as a resource in the pursuit of better communication and hope that you find it of value in your ongoing learning. So we're back with Dr. Emily Lin. Uh, you've just heard our guest editorial and editorial. We'll be moving on next to our case summary. Emily, can you tell us uh, what you learned from researching this case and what your peers may take from it? Yeah, so I think I learned quite a few things from this case. Um, firstly, the importance of having those really difficult conversations when you first meet a patient and their family, like those limits or goals of care discussions, um, which can be really daunting when you first, I guess, meet someone for the first time and you're sort of telling them, oh, you know, we've come across this diagnosis, but then what does this actually mean? Um, I think secondly, at the other end of the spectrum, having those seemingly quite daunting discussions with the coroner as well, even if it was just um, to check, like, you know, could this be a coroner's case? Should it be reported? That's also quite an important, but often, I guess, difficult to surmount conversation for some people. Um, and finally, I think this case also really highlighted the importance of communication, not just with families, which obviously is very important, but also within teams and between medical professionals and how poor communication, even from doctor to doctor, is just as concerning or disheartening for patients and their families when it comes down to it. Yeah, I think the case you've chosen is a perfect example for reflecting on some of those topics entirely. Um, so let's listen now to the case summary. Prioritising closure and disclosure from Dr. Emily Lin. Clinical summary. Mr. W was a 77-year-old Indigenous man who presented to his general practitioner with epigastric pain, fatigue and weight loss. Blood tests revealed that Mr. W's liver function was deranged and he was referred to the emergency department for further investigations. In hospital, Mr. W was diagnosed with stage 4 colorectal cancer. He had an obstructing primary mass in his colon, which had metastasized to his liver and portal lymphadenopathy obstructing the common bile duct. He was admitted under the general surgical team, who successfully removed the colon mass. The common bile duct, however, remained obstructed, and the plan was to remedy this before having Mr. W assessed for palliative chemotherapy. An endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography procedure was performed five days later to insert a stent into the common bile duct. The procedure was not successful and two days later, Mr W began to deteriorate, reporting nausea, vomiting and abdominal pain. His family met with the general surgical registrar the next day and asked that no further procedures be performed on Mr W without the family being informed. Furthermore, the family were told that a multidisciplinary team discussion would occur in one week and they would be notified of the outcome. Over the next week, Mr W seemed to improve. He began tolerating a soft diet, was mobilising and reported mild to no pain. A plan was made for him to undergo a percutaneous transhepatic cholangiography. The family was not informed of this plan. That day at 2pm, 
Mr. W underwent the procedure and a permanent biliary wall stent was inserted by an interventional radiologist to relieve the common bile duct obstruction. The next day, Mr. W reported pain at the stent insertion site and demonstrated signs of clinical deterioration. On review by the surgical team, the impression was that of a sepsis post-biliary stent insertion. The interventional radiologist was not consulted and a CT scan was not requested. Mr. W was resuscitated with fluids and commenced on intravenous antibiotics. The next day, he had improved enough to go outside with his family. The following day, however, Mr. W suffered another deterioration with an acute onset of left shoulder pain, increased abdominal pain, and the feeling that his body was shutting down. On examination, his abdomen was tight and distended. A diagnosis of peritonitis was made and Mr. W's daughter requested the doctors do something. A CT scan of the abdomen was ordered. The images were reported as suspicious for biliary stent damage to the duodenal wall and the radiologist recommended urgent assessment and management by a surgeon as well as a CT tubogram. The CT tubogram demonstrated contrast in the retroperitoneum and right paracolic gutter, consistent with a bowel perforation of the duodenum. The imaging was reviewed by the radiologist and the general surgeon, and it was noted that the retroperitoneal collection was amenable to percutaneous drainage. The surgical registrar discussed these findings and the plan to drain the collection with Mr. W. His family were not present at the time. Mr. W was initially reluctant to have further intervention, but agreed as the procedure might decrease his pain. Limits of care were also discussed with Mr. W, including the completion of a not-for-resuscitation form. The documented plan in the medical record was to drain the collection in radiology and undertake a discussion with Mr. W's family. Mr. W was taken to radiology, but did not have the procedure due to time constraints. A few hours later, Mr. W deteriorated further and was in severe pain. He passed away soon after, surrounded by his family. The surgical registrar arrived a short time later and confirmed there were no signs of life. The intern was left to explain the circumstances to the family. A retrospective note by a surgical cover doctor who had assessed Mr. W a few hours before his death stated that family is around, aware patient is not well, hasn't been expecting this much of sudden deterioration and that this was a non-coroner's case. Despite this, the intern thought the death was reportable and discussed it with the surgical registrar who agreed. Two days later, however, the surgical registrar sent a text to the intern stating they spoke to the coroner, not reportable death. A month after Mr W's death, his family sent a list of 42 questions regarding his care to the hospital, which were logged in the hospital's adverse incident tracking system. A meeting was arranged between Mr W's family and the general surgeon and interventional radiologist involved in Mr W's case, as well as the head of surgery. The interventional radiologist attended the meeting for 15 minutes and the general surgeon did not attend at all as it was his operating day. It was left to the head of surgery to conduct the meeting with the family, which was described as hampered by a lack of detail. Despite numerous attempts by the family to communicate with the treating team, they were unable to obtain an adequate response to their questions. 
They then lodged a complaint with the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency and the Health and Community Services Complaints Commission. Pathology. An autopsy was performed to elucidate the pathological findings so that the understanding of clinical staff might be enhanced in order to allow informed discussions with family members. The following day, a doctor at the hospital signed a medical certificate of cause of death, noting sepsis due to retroperitoneal collection after biliary stent insertion. Investigation. The death was reported to the coroner by the Health and Community Services Complaints Commission. The coroner held an inquest to focus on several issues in this case, in particular those relating to communication, both with the family and between medical staff, as well as the issue of failing to report the death to the coroner. Examination of the documentation in Mr W's medical record revealed that updates provided to the family were often remiss. Important discussions regarding the diagnosis and treatment of Mr W were not conducted in the presence of or with family members. Further, despite the family being assured after the ERC had been done that any future procedures would be discussed with them, it was clear that this did not happen. Mr W had gone on to have another procedure, a CT tubogram, and was consented for percutaneous drainage, all without notice to his family. Mr W was notified of and consented for each procedure on the day of its occurrence. As such, he did not have an opportunity to discuss the matters with his family or gain their assistance in understanding the aims, risks and benefits of each procedure. The family remained unaware of all the proposed procedures and were usually only informed after they had taken place. The coroner heard that the family felt they were ignored and excluded. An independent medical expert who was a general physician opined that the limitations of care orders were not discussed in a timely manner with either Mr W or his family. Despite the team's clear plan that Mr W was to be assessed for palliative chemotherapy, no discussion about limits of care had occurred with Mr W until he was in severe pain and only a few hours prior to his death. The doctor's communication with the family before and following Mr W's death was explored by the coroner. The situation was described as being far from ideal. In the first instance, the intern was left to explain Mr W's death to his family. The family's written questions a month following his death were then left unanswered, and a month after that, the general surgeon failed to attend the meeting that had been organised with the family to address their concerns. Overall, the coroner felt there was a lack of respect in the way the family was treated and acknowledged that, that this contributed to the grief felt by the family. A lack of communication between the treating surgical team and other clinicians was also considered at inquest. The coroner heard that several medical practitioners had expressed concern at the hospital morbidity and mortality meeting that the interventional radiologist was not consulted when Mr W deteriorated following the percutaneous transhepatic cholangiography. Also, there was no communication between the radiologist and the surgeon when the percutaneous drainage was postponed. In closing, the coroner took an austere attitude to the failure to report Mr W's death, stating that his death was reportable 
as it was clearly unexpected and from an injury from a procedure four days earlier. Five or more doctors were present or involved at the time of Mr W's death or shortly thereafter who should have reported the death and yet none had done so. The coroner noted that although the surgical registrar indicated they had asked and were advised it was not a reportable death, there was no evidence that the coroner's office had been contacted. The telephone records were scrutinised and at the inquest, the registrar did not remember making the call. Coroner's findings. The coroner found that the treating team failed to communicate appropriately with the patient and family in terms of diagnosis, treatment and limitations of care. Lack of communication between the doctors further compounded these issues. The family was unable to get a satisfactory explanation following Mr W's death as either the most junior member of the surgical team or conversely the unit head who was not directly involved in Mr W's care were left to undertake these complex discussions. Additionally, it was noted that neither Mr W's death nor the circumstances surrounding his death had been appropriately entered into the hospital's adverse incident tracking system. Finally, the coroner found that Mr W's death was a reportable death on two accounts given it was clearly unexpected and from an injury from a procedure four days earlier. The coroner recommended that all medical staff should be trained in appropriate communication with patients and families. In particular, discussions concerning the patient's symptoms and presentation of disease, prognosis, limits of care and risks of procedures. Emphasis was also placed on the consultant role of treating teams, recommending that consultants fulfil their leadership obligations when communicating with families and other treating professionals, as well as ensuring that adverse events are recorded and reported. Author's comments. This case highlights many practical and often overlooked learning points. Clinicians tend to focus on managing the acutely unwell patients. When pressed for time, explaining a diagnosis, discussing prognosis, limitations of care, and updating families will often take a back seat. Had the treating team taken the opportunity to discuss Mr W's diagnosis and options with himself and his family, some of the pain and shock experienced may have been avoided. There were multiple underlying system issues contributing to this case. The over-reliance on incident tracking systems to log adverse events and a lack of visible clinician accountability. The basic structure of hospital clinician teams where the junior doctor is the most readily available and yet least experienced person to communicate. In this way, we can be underestimating the complexity of facilitating discussions with family members about highly technical clinical matters and nuances in conveying risk slash benefits of treatment. Finally, responsibility for opening and maintaining the channel of communication between the clinical team and family requires a level of skill and maturity that comes with real life experience, not simulated practice at medical school. The coroner's recommendations emphasise the importance of senior medical practitioners stepping into their leadership roles in such circumstances, but also the importance of all medical staff learning the appropriate skills for such situations. We're back again with Dr Emily Lin. That was our case summary. We're moving on now to our expert commentaries. 
Our first expert commentary is titled Agility in Clinical Communication, a Critical Lifelong Learning for All Doctors. And it's given by Professor Michelle Leach, Deputy Dean, Faculty of Medicine, Nursing and Health Sciences at Monash University. Emily, can you tell us what you've learned from this expert commentary? Yeah, so I thought that Professor Leach's commentary really delved into the real world ramifications and application of communication with families, which is a much more complex and sort of ever changing and sometimes even a potentially harmful undertaking, if not clearly and carefully performed or indeed undertaken at all, which I hadn't thought about. Um, her commentary also really reminds me that of those particularly vulnerable patients, such as the elderly or culturally diverse and the importance of involving you know, those multidisciplinary specialists like the Aboriginal liaison officer in, in such cases and how much they can really add to the sort of clinician-patient relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I reflected on it and found it really, um, really uh, resonated with my kind of day-to-day practice working in the emergency department. I think it's an excellent commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, your second expert commentary is from uh, Professor Justin Oakley, uh, Deputy Director of Monash Bioethics Centre. Um, his commentary is titled The Ethics of Clinician Accountability in Healthcare Practice. Uh, with Professor Oakley's commentary, can you tell us what you've learned from it? Yeah, so I found Professor Oakley's commentary really interesting how he sort of discussed the issues of clinician accountability and ethical obligation as well as the use of incident tracking systems to monitor if indeed clinicians are meeting the standard that they have been trusted to uphold. Um, of particular interest, you also explored you know, the patient's moral entitlement to information from not only a consent point of view, but also in order to respect the patient's autonomy, regardless of the realistic options that are available to them, which I found really very interesting as well. Yeah, absolutely. It really gave me a pause for thought um, coming at it from the patient's perspective and their, their access to the information um, that we collect about them. Um, so let's listen to both of those expert commentaries now. Expert commentary, agility in clinical communication, a critical lifelong learning for all doctors from Professor Michelle Leach. Communication as a key skill is stressed as a high priority at every year level in every medical course nationally, and I'm sure globally. Understandably, the clinical and procedural skills and immense knowledge that go with being a registered medical practitioner often create a sense of urgency for students especially as they prepare for exams. Basic communication skills can be assessed in standardised examinations and simulated scenarios can be used to assess some more complex skills like breaking bad news. However, it is often hard for medical students to fully appreciate that communication is a very complex cognitive skill in healthcare, one that often gets us into trouble and far more importantly, has the potential to harm our patients. Ultimately, the patient is the centre of our medical universe. The priorities for each patient vary and require adaption, flexibility and a fine-tuned sense of the patient and family's understanding and feelings about their progress. Just recently, we had a patient in our unit who very rapidly became unwell on the background of an established serious disease. After she had been transferred to intensive care and we had some sense of what was happening, I said to my wonderful and highly competent registrars, all outstanding communicators, that I was going to ring the patient's family and talk to them. 
I explained that I fully trusted their ability to communicate, but it was my habit whenever I was worried that a patient could die to immediately ensure that a connection with the most senior member of the team was established. Other members of the team can then participate and augment these connections and channels, even down to the most junior member of the team. There is no prescribed communication frequency when a loved one is dying under mysterious or unclear circumstances, but the channels of communication must be open and clear. We can adjust the dose, the frequency and type of communication we provide as the situation changes. We must be agile, adaptable and continuously imagine ourselves in the situation of the patient and family. Close family will experience profound helplessness. When this is coupled with a lack of information, the suffering for families can be unbearable. The history of Mr. W's final illness and his family's experience is heartbreaking. His personal stoicism and his culture made him especially vulnerable in the hospital setting where, sadly, mistrust of institutions and ongoing racism in healthcare culture continues to affect the quality and experience of healthcare for Indigenous people. This gentleman, more than anyone, needed the advocacy and connection of the hospital Aboriginal liaison officer. He, his family and his culture are not separate entities, but one whole that must be considered together. A whole of family meeting with appropriate cultural supports is even more crucial here. I would be guided by the ALO and nearest family about the when, with who, how, and how often of communication in this context. I write this not as a real expert, but as an older clinician who has made many errors myself and no doubt been less than adequate on many occasions and for many reasons. At any one time, even in most acute ward settings, there are one or two patients of immediate concern. As soon as we feel worried, we should recognise that and start to think about who needs to know of our worries and how we are going to communicate these clearly and compassionately as soon as we can. Expert Commentary, The Ethics of Clinician Accountability in Healthcare Practice from Professor Justin Oakley. This case raises significant ethical concerns regarding communication, consent and accountability. I will focus mainly on the clinician accountability issues. Those who become clinicians are selected from the rest of the community and are given extensive training to carry out various procedures which others are not allowed to perform. This monopoly of expertise and service provision that clinicians are entrusted with creates a reciprocal ethical obligation for clinicians to allow and indeed to assist the community to determine whether the services being provided by clinicians are of the required standard. The recording and auditing of adverse events and near misses are crucial ways for health service providers and the community to monitor whether the healthcare being given is falling below the requisite standard which clinicians have been entrusted with providing. However, the coroner highlights how, in this case, the inadequate use of the adverse incident tracking system employed by the health service constituted a failure to meet their obligations to Mr W and his family and to the broader community. 
neglecting to record in this tracking system highly relevant details such as the complications of the endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography procedure performed on Mr W and his subsequent death fails to take seriously the accountability obligations of healthcare providers to patients and the broader community under which healthcare providers are granted a monopoly of expertise on the provision of such services in the first place. Properly recording such details is ethically significant for another reason. Information about adverse events and deaths can help to prevent harms to future patients who might find themselves in similar circumstances. Indeed, there is a strong argument that such incident records should be made available as part of the process of seeking informed consent when patients regard such details as relevant to their decision about consenting to a particular procedure being performed by a specific clinician at a particular hospital. According to a standard account of informed consent, the information which must be made available to patients includes information about the significant risks associated with the procedure, along with information which the patient would regard as material or relevant to their decision. The risks involved in undergoing a procedure will vary according to which clinician performs that procedure, and so information about clinician performance can plausibly be viewed as another type of risk information. For example, there are varying complication rates between surgeons performing endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography procedures. If a patient regards their surgeon's complication rate for ERC procedures as relevant to the decision about whether to consent to this surgeon performing the procedure, then details about this surgeon's ERC complication rate should be provided to the patient, along with contextualising information as part of the informed consent process. Incident tracking systems, when properly used, can contribute important details for systems which monitor and report performance information on individual surgeons. It is sometimes argued that autonomy is all about choice. That the failure to make a surgeon's performance information available to patients does not involve a failure to respect patient autonomy because many patients in countries with national health schemes such as the United Kingdom and Australia do not have an opportunity to choose which surgeon would perform a procedure on them and so would not be able to act on such information. However, being in a position where one is unable to act on risk information does not remove one's moral entitlement to such information. A commitment to respecting patient autonomy is not only about helping patients to make informed choices between different interventions or therapies and respecting their choices, it is also about helping patients to understand what it is they are consenting to, even when there is only one clinical option available to them. Suppose, for instance, that there was only one effective medication available to treat a particular clinical condition. It would clearly be implausible for a clinician to argue that you are therefore not morally entitled to information about the side effects of this medication. If you consider the side effects of the medication worth knowing about, then being told about those side effects is part of what is involved in you authorising this medication being administered to you. Similarly, 
the fact that the design of a particular healthcare system precludes patients having the option of choosing a different surgeon from the one allocated to them for the procedure does not imply that patients in that system lack a moral entitlement to information about the risks of this operation when performed by this particular surgeon. So, as part of consenting to these procedures, Mr W was morally entitled to have access to information about the past performance of the surgeon who would perform the hemicolectomy and of the surgeon who would carry out the endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography procedure and also of the visiting interventional radiologist who would perform the percutaneous transhepatic cholangiography procedure. Insights from Mr W's family about how his care could have been improved. This list was provided to the coroner by the family of Mr W. It describes their insights into how his care could have been improved. It was published along with the findings of the coroner's investigation. An abridged copy of the list is provided here. 1. When a patient or family member expresses that they are in pain, listen to them. Talk to them. Show them understanding. Believe them. When they tell you they can feel their body shutting down, Show compassion and respect. Don't dismiss how they are feeling. Two, after a procedure, if a patient is expressing concern about the amount of pain they are experiencing, don't dismiss, even if the specialist said it was successful. Reassessing or obtaining imaging should be the first option to identify the source. Three, it should be mandatory that permission be obtained early in the treatment of the patient's desire to have family involved or not. Thereafter, family should be involved at every stage of decision-making in the presence of the patient to assist and support them. 4. Don't downplay the patient's pain and only record what appears favourable to the hospital. Be honest, be open. 5. A lack of communication between senior and junior doctors can and at times does result in fatal outcomes. Better communication should be addressed as a priority. Six, medical staff should be aware of their body language and tone when communicating with family members about the death of their loved one. These can be misinterpreted as arrogant or give the perception that you would rather be elsewhere. This is a basis of respectful communication. Seven, include family in discussions about treatment the patient is trying to come to terms that they have a serious illness and they may not survive. If the patient is responding to your questions or agreeing to the treatment, don't assume that they have the required mindset to make decisions. In these circumstances, people need to have that family support. Eight, talk to the family and the patient together about the seriousness of their situation. Don't hold back from family any details. Be open. This can lead to the family distrusting doctors and the health system and taking matters further. There should be no surprises for family and family should not have to find out other significant details in reports and other documents after the family member has passed away. Hello again. We're back for our final section, comments from our peers. Emily, can you tell us about these comments? Uh, what comments resonated most with you and why? Yeah, so I think all of our peer comments resonated quite strongly with me. There's a very you know, strong theme of communication. Um, but I think the one I would have to pick would be um, the case reminds me that the work we do as a medical team is for our patients. And so their wishes and needs must be respected. 
And the reason I picked this one is because I think regardless of what we think is best or most important, ultimately it is what the patient wants that matters. Um, yes, we can help guide them, provide them with all the relevant information to their situation, explain what their options are, but ultimately they can make their own decisions regardless of whether or not we re- agree with them or not. And I think it is sort of going back to our expert commentaries as well, basic human right to be able to do this. And if we forget this, then we have we probably haven't listened to our patients properly and we haven't respected their basic rights and needs. And then I guess we have to wonder what we are doing and in fact, if we are helping the patient at all. And I think ultimately this does bring me back to sort of a full circle back to why we're in medicine and why we chose to pursue a career in medicine in the first place and what our ultimate role is, which I think is not essentially to make spectacular diagnoses or prescribe revolutionary treatments, but simply to help the person that's right in front of us then and there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think the patient autonomy is, is, is paramount. Um, and I think that's a, a perfect lead into the, the end of our edition. So here's our uh, next and final segment, the comments from our peers. Comments from our peers. One, the case really highlights the importance of having open, honest, and at times difficult conversations with patients and their families. Two, I've definitely had times when I've arrived home from a busy day and thought, oh no, I didn't call a patient's family. The commentary definitely makes me think about the consequences of that seemingly small omission. Three, the case reminds me that the work we do as a medical team is for our patients, and so their wishes and needs must be respected. Four, this case is a stark reminder of what can happen when communication may not be sufficiently prioritised by a team. Five, it is too easy to undervalue the role of family in a patient's care. Recognising and respecting their role is vitally important to achieving holistic patient-centred care. Six, this case highlights the importance of working with experts such as Aboriginal liaison officers to provide culturally appropriate and safe care. So that wraps up the October 2021 edition of the Future Leaders Communicate. I'd like to take this opportunity again to thank Dr. Emily Lynn for curating an excellent edition of the Future Leaders. Um, I hope this edition helps you in reflecting on your own practice and hopefully evolving your your clinical care. It certainly has mine. Remember, uh, you can find our latest editions and subscribe to the Future Leaders at www.thecommunicates.com. You can also find our sister editions, the Residential Age Care Communique and the Clinical Communique at the website. Otherwise, we'll see you all again for our next podcast edition. Thanks for your time.